Well, they say that you should never meet your heroes. You'll just be disappointed when you discover that they're only human. And I experienced something of that myself a few years ago. Um, I grew up in Northern Ireland, and in the late 70s and early 80s, at the height of the Troubles, there wasn't much to celebrate about the country. But there was at least one sporting hero we could cheer on. And his name was Alex the Hurricane Higgins. And the sport was snooker. Um, Some of you may not believe this, but snooker was an extremely popular sport back then. Millions used to tune in to watch it on their TVs. It was an age of snooker giants. People like Terry Griffiths, Ray Reardon, the young Steve Davis. I know you're shuddering with excitement here. But the most exciting player of them all was Hurricane Higgins. There were no long pauses when he played. He had an amazing natural ability at the game, which meant he could just walk up to the table and pot whatever he needed to at top speed. Hence, his nickname, the Hurricane. And Alex Higgins was from Belfast, from quite near where I grew up. So he was a real local hero to me and to other children like me. And when he won the World Championship in 1982... I remember my whole family celebrating that night. Well, a few years ago, I was in a pub in Belfast with my brother, and an elderly man walked in from outside. And he was small, and he was frail, and when he spoke, you could barely hear his voice. And wrapped up against the cold, he went round the bar, asking the man at it if he could borrow some money. And after one or two of them gave him a few pound coins, he headed out the door again. My brother and I looked at each other and just realised we had just seen Hurricane Higgins in the flesh. See, after that high point of 1982, Higgins' snooker career took a nosedive. He'd always been a drinker, but soon his drinking got out of control. His wife left him. He was banned from playing for a year after a head-butting an official. And in recent years, he's been battling against throat cancer. He'd been basically a sporting giant to me when I was growing up. But when I saw him, he was a frail old man who needed to borrow money from people in a pub to get through the night. It was a depressing sight. It was sad to see someone I'd really admired brought so low. And I thought that I felt after seeing Alex Higgins fall from greatness, how much more painful would it have been for an ancient Israelite to read the chapter we've just had read to us, to hear how the greatest king they had ever had, David, was brought low by his own sin. See, David was a true hero to ancient Israel. He had defeated the Philistine giant Goliath and all the other nations that threatened Israel. He had brought peace and stability to the nations. He'd given them a capital city to be proud of and he had put the worship of God at the heart of the nation. David was the king Israel had always longed for. He was the high point after which every other king would look back at him. And here he is in 2 Samuel 11, guilty of adultery and murder, abusing the power God had given him to cover up his sin. See, make no mistake, this episode from David's life would have been deeply painful for ancient Israel to remember. So we need to ask the question, why does the writer of 2 Samuel devote so much space to it? 
at least as much space is devoted to David defeating Goliath. See, even for ourselves today, these chapters can be a bit depressing. I mean, I hope we've seen throughout this series that David, he's, he's a deeply attractive character. He's a great warrior who defends his people, a great leader who trusts in God and cares for his people, a great musician and poet whose psalms we still read and sing today. And yet here we are, finishing our series on David this morning with a detailed account of David's sin. Isn't that a bit bleak? A bit depressing? Couldn't we have chosen a happier note to end this series on? And some people might think these chapters play into the picture of the Bible as a depressing book, one that just is morbidly obsessed with sin. Why can't we just major on the good, they say? Why do we need to focus so much on the bad? Why two whole chapters on David's sin? Well, I want us to see this morning there are very good reasons why these two chapters are devoted to this account of David's life. Because the detail of David's sin and its consequences are written down here to help us. See, David's sin may seem extreme to us. Adultery, murder, we've maybe never been guilty of those crimes. But actually... At the heart of it, David's sin is not that different to the sin every one of us struggles with every day of our lives. You may not be guilty of adultery or murder, but as we look at David's sin more closely, we get a stark picture of the sin that we need to struggle against. So these chapters show us something of sin's destructiveness and its consequences. It's heartbreaking to see a godly man like David fall into this sin but it's also a warning to us if David could fall so can any of us so we have this account of David's sin here to to prepare us to help us in our battle against sin and perhaps more than anything else there are chapters here that help us see the sheer ugliness of sin in action See, that word sin has become sort of meaningless for many people. And so often we fall into the trap of thinking of sin as something attractive. We imagine that a life lived for ourselves, without having to think about God at all, well, surely that would be a lot more enjoyable. It would be an easier life. We begin to view sin a bit like chocolate cake, sort of naughty but, but nice. And life would be very bland without it. You see, David's experiences in these chapters expose the lie in that way of thinking. We're going to see this morning, sin is ugly. Its consequences are terrible. And that is why we need the God who is committed to rescuing us from our sin. So let's look over this story briefly now. Chapter 11 begins with Israel at war with the Ammonites. It's a war that began in chapter 10. And the whole Israelite army is at war under the command of David's general, Joab. But David himself has remained in Jerusalem. In verse 2, David gets out of bed one night, goes for a walk on the roof of his palace. And then, verse 2, from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David wants to know 
who this beautiful woman is. And he discovers her name, her family, and crucially for what happens next, that she has a husband, Uriah the Hittite. David hears the words of the messenger, but he chooses to ignore them. And things move very quickly in verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. It's all clipped phrases here. David sent. She came to him. He slept with her. She went back home. And this is David, the great poet. But there is no eulogizing of Bathsheba's beauty here. No declarations of love. By verse 5, even Bathsheba's name is unimportant. She becomes simply the woman. See, in verse 4, David's actions are not motivated by love, but by lust. And once the action is done, he sends Bathsheba home. And that should have been the end of it. But verse 5, that's not the end of it. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. See, David is now in trouble. So we need to realise that had David been an absolute monarch, like so many of the kings around him, his actions here would have been no problem at all. Kings of surrounding nations used to take wives for themselves at every turn, and there would be no consequences for them. But you see, for David, he was a king of Israel. And the God of Israel said that David was still under God's law. So king or no king, David had sinned in God's eyes. And he and Bathsheba were at the risk of the death penalty for what they had done. So David chooses to cover up his actions. In verse 6, he sends for Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, from the front line on the pretense of asking him about the war. David urges him to go home and hopefully sleep with his wife. But Uriah refuses. In verse 11, we get Uriah's only recorded speech. And in it, he shows himself to be a loyal and faithful soldier who refuses to have the creature comforts of home while his fellow soldiers are camping in the open field. So despite David's best efforts, Uriah refuses to go home. So David's forced to try a different approach. In verse 14, David sends a letter to Joab telling him to place Uriah wherever the fighting is heaviest and then abandon him there and let him die. And Uriah takes this letter from the king who has been so kind and generous to him, who has been so concerned for him. He takes this letter to his general, thinking it must be a very innocent note, not knowing this was his death warrant. And sure enough, by verse 17, Uriah is dead, killed in battle. Joab sends word to David. David's relief is palpable. David's plan has worked. After a brief period of mourning, probably only a week, Uriah's wife becomes David's wife. And she bears him a son. And that's the end of the story from David's perspective. But then we see the end of verse 11. It is not the end of the story from God's perspective. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Verse 27. That's the first reference to the Lord in the whole chapter. David has ignored him throughout. 
But the Lord has seen everything David has done. Chapter 12 begins with the Lord sending Nathan, the prophet, to challenge David about his actions. And Nathan does that with a story of a rich man stealing the beloved lamb of a poor man to cook for his guest. That's in verses 1 to 4. David hears this story and he is outraged. Verse 5, David burned with anger against the rich man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. The rich man in the story, David, is you. The poor man is Uriah and you've stolen Uriah's wife and had Uriah killed with the little pity that that rich man showed when he stole a sheep. Nathan confronts David with his sin and pronounces God's judgment on him. Before we turn to that judgment, just what do the events of chapter 11 have to teach us today? See, as we recount them, as we just have, David's sin here just appears so extreme and we're like David when we hear the story about the rich man and the poor man. We go, that is terrible. David is, is just reprehensible here. He deserves to be punished for what he's done. But if we do that, we, we let ourselves off the hook from this story. Because sadly, while the detail of David's sin may not apply to us, sin's power to destroy and scar our lives is just as evident in our hearts as it was in David's. So what do these chapters tell us about sin? Well, first of all, they show us the destructiveness of sin. See how quickly events get out of hand for David. One sin quickly leads to another as David is consumed by the passion to cover up what he's done. In the end, he has someone killed to achieve that goal. See, when David gives in to sin in his life, it seems to have the power to, to take him over. It has a terrible effect on him. Sin quickly becomes David's master. It takes his good points and it perverts them. And so often, that is how sin works in our lives. Sin takes the good things in our characters and it twists them. See, look at David here. We've seen throughout this series, he is a passionate man. He's an emotional man. Back in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, that passion was directed towards God. He danced with all his might before the Lord. And so many of his psalms that we read today show the passion and devotion he had to God. And I'm convinced so many of us could learn from David on that. We are often so cold in our relationship with God. We can learn from David's passion. But in this chapter, chapter 11, David's strength becomes his weakness when he directed his passion towards his own appetites, his own pleasures. See, when he gives in to his sinful nature, the very thing that's one of his strengths becomes a terrible weakness. David also was a, was a ruler who inspired loyalty and devotion from his people. He was good with people. His subjects listened to him and respected him. But in the grip of sin, that meant David thought he could manipulate people. He could make Uriah do what he wanted. He could make Joab do what he wanted. A strength of David 
was again perverted by sin into a terrible weakness. And it's the same with us today. Sin is more subtle than we think it is. And it's got the power to take our good points, the particular characteristics God has given us, and pervert them with terrible consequences. So, a young man has the God-given courage to make tough decisions in his life, in his job. But when he lacks compassion for those under him, he becomes a tyrant. Sin perverts that courage into tyranny. A mother commits herself to loving her family, but she becomes emotionally manipulative and controlling if she feels that that family is not doing what she wants them to do. That good point has been twisted. A husband commits himself to listening to his wife, to respecting her opinion, but gradually that just leads him to failing to take responsibility for any decisions himself. He becomes lazy. What started as a good thing became something harming. And then someone else who's maybe gifted in listening to people and empathizing with people just grows more and more bitter when they don't receive that level of care and support they seek to give others. See, sin is destructive because so often it subtly takes our good points, our strengths, and it twists them into sinful, selfish attitudes. How can we guard against that happening? Well, that's a difficult question to answer. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, puts it like this. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? And we are dealing with our hearts in this. We cannot always see the the sins we will fall into, the attitudes that we will entrap ourselves with. But a good question to ask is how important is knowing God to me at this point in my life? Because when David's good points were divorced from a relationship with God, that was when sin perverted them. I want you to recognize the same thing happens to us. David's passion served the wrong object in this chapter. His own pleasure, his own respectability. And whether or not you see yourself as a passionate person, we need to recognize something about our hearts. Either our hearts will will be driven by a love of God and his glory or they'll be driven by something else. And that is when sin can pervert them. See, our hearts, they, they don't tolerate a vacuum. Either we'll worship God or we'll worship something or someone else. Either we'll live for God or we'll live for something or someone else. And God has many rivals for our affections. Our families, our children, success, acceptance, respect, love. But if any of those become the king of our hearts, then our natures become twisted by sin. See, let's learn from David's mistake here. When we aren't watching our hearts, we're not guarding them, and they will betray us. They will drift from God very quietly, very imperceptibly. And before we know it, 
sin is our master. And more than that, this chapter shows us what lies at the very heart of sin. And it's all bound up with our relationship with God. In verse 10 of chapter 12, the Lord sums up what lay at the heart of David's sin. And his words are stinging. Verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. See, that is what lies at the heart of sin. Despising God. And that can show itself in many ways in in ridicule or mockery of God. So I'm sure we've met people who do do that and out and out laugh at the God of the Bible. But more often than that, it's more subtle. Because we despise God when we ignore him. When we treat him as unimportant. Or maybe just important for a small part of our lives. We despise God when we make him small and incidental to our lives. And can you see now that David's sin is not so unlike our own? Again, you may not be an adulterer or a murderer, but how often are you guilty of despising God? How often do you think of God as just small, as, as unimportant? We want to decide what's good and evil in our lives, not God. We want to be in control, not God. See, despising God is the very heart of sin. And we are all guilty of it in our lives. And then as chapter 12 continues, we begin to see the consequences of sin. Because letting sin be our master rather than God always has consequences, even for a believer like David. And that's because God is a just God. He is a God of justice. And that is both frightening for us when we know we have sinned, but actually it's also tremendously reassuring for us when we look at the world around us. See, sometimes it feels like evil people, evil events in this world go on unchallenged. People get away with murder. Injustices never get reversed. But you see, chapter 12 here reminds us sin has consequences. God is a God of justice and he will punish sin. And actually, that is good news. I mean, just imagine for a moment, you're an ordinary Israelite and you're hearing the story of David's treatment of Uriah in chapter 11. Uriah is like you. He's an ordinary man and he's at the mercy of the powerful people above him. And as you hear Uriah's fate, you feel great sympathy for him as you see him caught up in this, the murderous schemes of a king. And you come to the end of chapter 11 and you go, well, that's just the way the world is. The rich people get on, the poor people get crushed. I just need to accept that is the way of the world. But if that's what our ordinary Israelite thinks at the end of chapter 11, he needs to see that that is not the way the God of Israel works. And it's not the way our God works. Our God will punish sin, even the sin of a king like David, even the sin of powerful people. He's a God of justice, and that actually is wonderful news. 
But then we look at our own hearts and it becomes a bit more frightening. We look at God's judgment of David in verse 10. The Lord tells David, because of what he has done, the sword shall never depart from your house. And from this point onwards, David's family was at war with itself. In chapter 13, one of his sons rapes his half-sister and is then himself killed by his half-brother. David's son Absalom rebels against David and almost succeeds in seizing the throne. And he fulfills the prophecy of verses 11 and 12 by sleeping with David's concubines in broad daylight. See, David's sin has terrible consequences for his family and for the whole nation of Israel. And in the short term, the child born to David and Bathsheba dies. Verses 14 to 18. And the writer slows down at this point. He wants us to see David facing up to the consequences of his sin. So in verses 15 to 23, we have this moving account of David pleading with God. His child falls ill, just as the Lord promised, and David pleads that his child might live. Verse 16 and 17. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food from them. See, what is David doing here? Is David guilty of another sin here? Is he refusing to accept God's judgment on him? Well, actually, I don't think so. Verse 22 shows us David's reasoning for pleading with God. He says, I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. Can you see here, David, in responding to his sin, is coming back into contact with the God of grace. He knows this God. He knows God is gracious. And that is what drives him to prayer. See, David knows God takes no pleasure in punishing sin. As Martin Luther put it, punishing sin is God's alien work. God far prefers to show his glory in forgiving undeserving people like David. So David prays for his child. And God does not rebuke him. It shows David coming back to depend on the God of grace. But ultimately David is forced to trust in God and trust that God's ways are right. Because his child does die. David's willingness to accept the consequences of his sin is a sign that his repentance is genuine, even as David hopes one day that God will allow him to see his child again. Verse 23, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. See, we need to see here that sin always has consequences. If you're not a Christian here today, let me be stark. The consequences of your sin is eternally being cut off from God in hell. And please, while there is time, run to Jesus and ask him to forgive you and make you right with God. But even if you are a Christian here this morning, 
Our sin does have consequences in the here and now. We are set free from the eternal consequences. Jesus has taken them on himself. We will not be condemned by God when Jesus returns. But we do face up to our sin in the here and now. See, perhaps our sin has resulted in broken trust or broken relationships. You may have bitter regrets over past sin that still haunt you. You may suffer from damaging habits, from ways of thinking that just you long to be free of. So how should we respond to those consequences as Christians? I think we can learn from David here. We can cry out to God to heal those broken relationships, to remove those regrets, to liberate us from those habits, those mindsets that we want to be free of. But even if he doesn't, even if God in his wisdom wants us to still face those consequences of our sin, like David, we need to trust in him. Trust that those consequences have things to teach us about a greater dependence on God, about a a humbler, truer knowledge of our hearts, and maybe just that we would celebrate more that we are forgiven, even as we're reminded of the ways we have failed God. So sin has consequences, these chapters tell us. So we're coming to the end of chapters 11 and 12 here, and to the end of our brief series on the life of David. And as we do that, I just want to return to the question I began with. Why do we need to see all this about sin? What value does it have for us? These are grim truths that we would long to do without. But you see, in our struggle against sin, we need to know our enemy. We need to know the way sin can subtly take hold of our hearts and twist them. But above all else, these chapters show us the ugliness of sin and we need to see that if we are really going to see the beauty of God's grace and his commitment to rescue us from our sin. See, I'm told that um, when some jewellers want to display the beauty of a diamond, they often put it against a dark cloth. And against that black background, the diamond's brilliance shines out even more. You see, in a similar way, we sometimes need to see the ugliness of sin if we're going to value the beauty of grace. And there is grace present and active in these grim chapters. Because in these chapters, finally, we can see and look forward to the defeat of sin. Just look at verse 10 of chapter 12. In this verse, we actually see the cross foreshadowed in God's judgment on David. See, last week, if you were here, we saw in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel that God promised David that his steadfast love will never be taken away from David's house. And here in verse 10, God promises David that the sword shall never depart from your house. So David's house, David's family tree, was marked by both God's steadfast love and the sword of God's judgment. How can we reconcile 
those two promises of God. Well, the New Testament tells us only at the cross of Jesus. See, there on the cross, David's great descendant, Jesus, took the full force of the sword of God's judgment. And in doing so, he extended that steadfast love of God to the whole of humanity who would believe in him. See, God's judgment and God's love meet in David's line. And they meet supremely at the cross that is our only hope. See, that is the heart of the gospel. God punishes sin, but he does that in the person of his son for those who trust in him. Sin is serious, it is ugly, but God's grace is greater and able to overcome our sin. See, even in these chapters where we see David succumb to sin, we can also see God working towards the defeat of sin. And this morning we can know, living after the cross, that sin has been defeated. Jesus has won the victory over it. So as we look at this grim picture of sin in David's life, as we recognise the same pull sin has on our lives, we need to see there is a solution. But that is only in the person of Jesus. We cannot overcome this sin on our own. David couldn't, we can't. So as we come to the end of this series on David, let's see together that as attractive a figure as David is, he actually isn't the hero of his story. He is human. He is fallen, just like us. But the hero of his story is the God of grace who saw David's heart but who committed himself to taking away David's sin. The God of grace who sees our hearts and is committed to taking away that sin that prevails there. Sin is ugly. These chapters leave us in no doubt. But God's grace is beautiful. And he extends us, extends it to us through his son Jesus.